0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Thinking Theologically podcast, the show where we teach you how and why you should think theologically. I'm one of your hosts, Jack Dodge, and joined as always by the master resident theologian and training, Spencer Shaw. Spencer, how are you doing?
1: Doing good. It's been it's been a little while since we've recorded uh, holidays and start Cold of the weather. year and Cold vacations weather. and <laughs> everything. Cold oh, yeah. weather.
0: Oh yeah oh yeah it's we we didn't get the snow that we were promised here in Oklahoma it was uh, I understand that it's difficult to project and all those things whatever but we were told like 6 inches and this was the day after we were coming back from vacation so I'm like that'd, that'd be cool and then it became like less than an inch half an inch third of an inch I'm like ah, that's a bummer it's a real bummer. It's just gonna be cold, but you don't get to enjoy the snow with it. Not fair. Did you get any snow where you were?
1: Uh we we actually got some um snow flurries. Okay. Uh down here, which is rare down in um Southeast Texas, uh, to get nobody down here you know nobody knows what to do when it gets cold um yeah and having lived just in oklahoma like i it's it didn't get i mean it got down into the teens at night for a few days but that not that cold uh but yeah we we did get some some snow flurries down here that Like, that was, like, the first time it's dropped below freezing, I feel like, since I've moved down here.
0: Well, that's not a bad run, all things
1: considered.
0: (laughs) But what a freeze that it was. Because ours, I think, hit negative 25 wind chill at one point somewhere in Mm. Oklahoma. Like, this is just wild stuff. Vacation in Florida, we had a tornado warning. We had to shelter. So, people from Tennessee and Oklahoma coming together in Florida... And we had to do what we always do is watch out for tornadoes. It's great. That's not how vacations are supposed to work. Then we drove back in five degree weather. Just insane. But I'm happy to be in an office that is unfortunately way too warm. The reader is outside my office (laughs) and it's colder out there. So it'll say like, oh, it's 72, but it's 78 in mine miserable <laughs> it's not an enjoyable heat but at least uh at least it's not cold so uh happy to be back in here doing podcast stuff i don't remember what our last episode was on was it interpreting the gospel it was
1: we Ooh. did we did the synoptic problem Yes, we had been we did. we did the episode on the gospels and then that moved us into feeling like hey i think we need to talk about uh the gospels. Yes, that's so, right.
0: That's right. So, yeah. I encourage people to check out the last couple episodes at the very least to look at both of those pieces uh, as they they go together. Though we've done several episodes now on how to interpret various genres of biblical literature that we come across. New Testament has been unique so far because of what we've done with the gospels and looking at that little extra special kind of way with the synoptic problem. And today uh, it's different because we're focusing in uh, on an author, which you know gets his own genre. He he writes he writes a little bit differently, and uh, all these writers use their words uh, in different ways, and so you have to evaluate them kind of on a case by case basis. So we're going to focus in on Paul and his letters and how he used uh, certain words, and also what kind of uh, beliefs he had as he was writing these things down. Uh, and I think this will be uh, I think this will be a good, enlightening episode for uh, students. Before we get into it, uh, I want to remind you about our email, uh, Strongchurchministries at gmail.com. If you have comments, questions, uh, suggestions for other episodes, uh, criticisms will save for social media, which you can find us on Facebook, at Thinking Theologically, or anywhere else if you just want to complain to Spencer directly. He is in all those other places. Uh, and then make sure you check out thinkingtheologically.org. We have uh, several articles that we've posted there, but we also have more intention to have a little bit more regular content, including potentially another podcast thing that I'll Co-host with somebody else. That's all I ever do is somebody else wants to do a podcast. And so they ask me if I will co-host and edit and post those things.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, you know, we can also add, I guess I'm hoping to do a little bit of hosting as well, doing some, hopefully be able to do some interviews with some people that can bring a unique perspective to some important theological Topics. So uh, So hopefully, a lot
0: of. Check the website. Yeah.
1: Yeah. A lot of new fun things hopefully will be coming out this year.
0: ThinkingTheologically.org. And make sure you uh, have liked the Facebook page, Thinking Theologically, in order to get updates on those things. I'm thankful to be able to say that because coming back from vacation, and Spencer can uh, provide witness to this, uh, I was concerned because we got a message that said our page was going to get shut down because it violated and all this stuff. And it looked very legitimate. And then when I clicked the link to go to where you send your, please do not do this, here's why. Uh, that page looked very legitimate too. Um, but when it asked me for like, hey, we need to see a picture of like your driver's license stuff like this, like, okay, I'm not, not so sure. And then my phone died. So all Spencer got from me was a panicked, like, hey, man, (laughs) you might want to check this out. My phone's about to die. Our page may be shut down. I don't know. Uh, Thankfully, the next morning, I got like three more of those messages from different users. And then my church page also got two. Like, there's no way that's what that actually is. So we're still alive. And kicking on the pa- on the page, and I'm thinking at least for, for now, <laughs> we have not done anything that is either a hate crime, copyright infringement, or um, violating terms of service yet. So, make sure you follow the page uh, to be updated on this podcast as well as the additional stuff uh, that we have going on. That's the short version of all of that uh, all that scariness. So, uh, how to interpret Paul's. Letters. Uh, you might think that it's weird that we focus in on an individual as far as this stuff goes, but not all of the New Testament letters are written alike. Uh, even just as casual Bible readers, you can tell uh, like the tonality of some of those letters, uh, especially between authors, uh, the, uh, the, the language... Uh, The language might be similar, but then the way that they use that language, you might go, oh, oh, that contradicts, you know, this other guy. That's not really it. You know, these writers are doing things in different ways. Uh, And with Paul being the guy who writes the majority of the New Testament, uh, it's good to stop and pay attention to him and go, what's going on in Paul's brain as he is writing these things? And why does he use words the way that he does? Uh, We're going to start with uh, a couple words here flesh versus the spirit. Spencer, what do you want to reveal to us about uh, the flesh and, and spirit words and how Paul used them?
1: So all of these things that we're going to be talking about with Paul, I think are very important. And one of the reasons, as you mentioned, is that Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament. We read a lot from Paul, we get a lot of theological concepts from Paul. So, correctly understanding Paul, I think, is very important. Anytime I come to a church, one of the things that I like to do fairly early on is to teach some letter from Paul. And when I do, we stop and we talk about each of these concepts, because I think it's applicable not just to whatever letter we're studying, but when they go home and they're reading any of Paul's other letters, the same holds true uh, because mm-hmm. Paul does things consistently. Paul has a theology. Paul uses words in certain ways. And that's kind of what we're going to be doing here is help, it, hopefully providing some information that will help you better interpret in- anything that you're reading from Paul, which, as we said, is a lot in the New Testament at least. So uh, this idea of flesh versus spirit, throughout Paul's letters, he often contrasts life in the flesh and life in the spirit. Maybe the, the best example that m- most are familiar with is Galatians chapter five, where you have the works of the flesh that are contrasted with the fruit of the spirit. Yeah. Now, when Paul speaks about life in the Spirit. He's talking about life in the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, guided by the Holy Spirit, uh, which is very important to Paul. So, for example, in Romans, Paul defines the life of a Christian as a life in the Spirit, Romans chapter 8 When he gets to the application portion, he begins in Romans 12 by saying not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I think Paul definitely understands that our mind's being renewed through the power of the Spirit. So we begin to think like God, make decisions like God, speak like God, do things like God. And so life in the Spirit is central to Paul, and that's contrasted with life in God the flesh. And Paul always uses, I believe, that this is up for debate, uh, but I think Paul always uses this word flesh uh, in a negative sense. And in Greek, it's the word sarx, flesh, negative. Now, Paul does not use this word flesh or sarx to refer to our physical body. Uh, when referring to our physical body, Paul tends to use the word soma, uh, yeah. to refer to the physical body. And that's important. You don't see it, I don't think, quite as much today. I think you see the results today. But especially during like the Reformation movement and in different points in Christian history, the, the physical body of human beings has been talked about negatively, that our bodies are bad or our bodies are sinful. And at times that's led to use your body however you want. Uh, Gnosticism in the second century uh, had some beliefs such as that. It's also led to, and this is where I think we see the carryover today, into belief about heaven. We talked about that in our new creation series that we leave these bodies behind and we go and float up in the clouds with with God. Whereas scripture speaks about the resurrection of the physical body the recreation, the new creation of all uh, the physical, not just human beings, but also all of God's creation. And I think our wanting to say, well, God's going to destroy everything physical. We're going to leave our physical bodies behind. I think that is a result of the negative attributions that have tended to be given to the physical body, and a lot of that comes from from Paul. And some of it is reading this word flesh as referring to our physical bodies, and that's not what Paul yeah. uses the word soma, talk about our spiritual, our physical bodies. And Paul values the physical body. He even mm-hmm. talks to the Corinthians about it matters how you use your physical body. You can't just live however you want in it because your physical body was bought the price. Rather, Paul uses the word flesh to refer to the sinful parts, the sinful desires, and the sinful thoughts of human beings. In in Paul's theology, the Christian, our life is an overlap of the flesh and the spirit, as long as we live in this sinful and broken world. In Romans 7, Paul talks about the good I want to do, I don't do, the bad that I don't want to do, I keep on doing, and there you see the tension that is in the life of the Christian. We have the Spirit dwelling within us. We are empowered by the Spirit to bear the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And in many ways, hopefully, we're in tune with the Spirit and bearing the fruit of the Spirit and living life in the Spirit, but we still have part of us that's fleshly. Uh, We have desires that are sinful. We have thoughts that are sinful, and sometimes those display themselves in our actions or our words when we do things that are sinful. And so for for Paul, uh, the life of the one who is in Christ is this tension between the spirit and the flesh. Prior to being in Christ, it was all flesh, at least mostly flesh, Paul would say would argue God's still at work there but we're one's living based upon the flesh. When the new creation comes in, where the flesh is destroyed and we're living solely based upon the spirit. That's when Paul talks about the spiritual life and the spiritual body. He's talking about a body again we talked about this in the new creation series. He's talking about a body that's fully controlled by the spirit. And not by the flesh. But now, for those who are in Christ, there's this tension. And I think the hope for Paul is we grow in the Spirit. That is, the Spirit gains more and more and more control over our lives and our thoughts, but we still have that fleshly part. So, throughout the Paul's letters, you'll see this contrast between the flesh and the Spirit, both in relation to before life in Christ, our current life in Christ, and then life in the new creation. Yeah. Okay.
0: That's uh, the flesh body distinction. Uh, it's it's First Corinthians 15 where there's been a lot of that uh, discussion, as well as as you have in the the notes here about First Corinthians 12 and all this. But especially our new heavens new earth discussions and all of those things about what heaven will be like. Um understanding the distinction between Sarks and Soma and understanding how Paul is using flesh, which is, uh, I think if you think maybe worldly, but even that's like, that's a word that gets used different by different New Testament writers as well. Um, but if you think kind of that, uh, as James would say, the earthly, um, Demonic kind of was this this thing in opposition to God and the and the spirit. It's not that the physical body, because again, we take for granted. I think the uh, Gnostic issue. It has not you and me, just Christians in general, because we don't really. Dis- it's becoming a little more discussed. I think in more public. Arenas, as far as Christianity is concerned, um, because it's still very pervasive in parts of the, the culture and, and the way the, the reason why people do certain things that they do, whether they know that or not. Um, and so we have to be really careful, and we're not normally where we talk about the body as this bad thing. Like, no, that's already been tried, and it was a really, really, really bad thing <laughs> uh, doctrinally, and that's absolutely not what Paul is advocating for. He's, he's on something else. Um, so understanding understanding flesh and how Paul is using that word uh, versus spirit, which I think most people understand that side, understanding that flesh is the flip of the coin there, um, this thing opposed, these, these negative uh, sinful parts and not the physical body itself. Like you said, super important uh, as we're reading through because that is going to shape, uh, again, what you said at the very beginning, Paul shapes a lot of our doctrine uh, because of how much he writes uh, within the New Testament. Uh, Speaking of which, the biggest section of our notes here comes in number two out of five. (laughs) Uh, This should be an, an interesting conversation something I'm only somewhat familiar with. And so I'm looking forward to uh, being enlightened on what all this stuff means. Uh, But the law, Paul spends a lot of the time, a lot of his writing talking about the law, especially in uh, like Romans. Uh, That's, well, he talks about everything in Romans, I guess. Uh, Flesh, spirit, law, all those things. He spends a lot of time talking about the law and sometimes uh, just very aggressively talking about the law. Uh, as he's talking to his his Jewish uh, his Jewish uh, friends and and family and all of this, so what do we need to know about the law as as Paul is is talking about those things?
1: So yeah, like you said, the, the law is something that Paul talks a lot about. It the law takes central stage in Romans and Galatians. Um, Galatians in many ways is a shorter version of Romans it comes at the beginning of of Paul's ministry perhaps the first letter that Paul wrote uh, that's debated but it's like one or two and then Romans comes a little bit more towards the end not the very end that's the pastorals first yeah. second Timothy Titus but yeah. uh, towards the tail end of Paul's ministry and is kind of a more developed version of what you see in Galatians and the law takes central stage in both of those letters And the law has, uh, throughout Christian history, been very misunderstood. So the traditional interpretation of Paul's discussion of the law is that Paul attacks the law because it's built on works righteousness, which cannot save. So the traditional belief is that the law says that the more works you do, the more good things you do, you can earn your salvation before God and Paul would say that that doesn't save and so the law works righteousness earning a status before God is then contrasted with salvation by faith alone through the grace of God which is what people would say Paul advocates. He says the law is bad because the law teaches that you can earn something from God. Paul's like, you can't do that. You're saved by faith alone because of God's grace, which is shown in Jesus. And Martin Luther of the Protestant Reformation was probably the dominant figure in developing this perspective. Mm. He's not the first one to say something like this, obviously not the last one, but when you're talking about the influence upon Christians, even to this day, it really goes back to Martin Luther. Now. Martin Luther gets this from Romans in particular. Martin Luther loved Romans. But we have to understand what Martin Luther was battling against. So if you're familiar with the Protestant Reformation, then one of the things you know that Martin Luther didn't like was the uh, sale of indulgences, which is, in essence, people being able to give money to the church in order to have their sins forgiven.
0: Yeah. So
1: the, the you're paying for forgiveness. And Martin Luther, rightly so, was like, that's not how it works. Forgiveness, salvation comes through faith alone, which is a grace given by God, which Martin Luther's right on that. But Martin Luther trying to fight against purchasing salvation, which is works righteousness, right? It's earning salvation through paying of money. Yeah. Martin Luther is trying to battle against that, and so he ends up reading the problems of his day back into Paul and seeing the law in Paul as synonymous with the cell of indulgences in his day, because that's what he's thinking about. And that causes him to misinterpret Paul. And we're all guilty of that in one way or another, of reading our own context back into Scripture. And making an author or a passage say something that it's not actually saying. Yeah. Now, sometimes, you know, we're right in doing that. And by that, I mean, you know, if I want to talk about... Well, uh, I'll, I'll give an example. The sermon that I'm preaching this Sunday, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about how some of the Corinthians are elevating themselves based on who baptized them. Yeah, Paul... Jesus, uh, Peter, Apollos. They desire okay. um, power. They desire status. And so they elevate who baptized them. The The, the Corinthians are elevating all of these uh, things into desire for uh, power and prestige and yeah. all of that, right? And mm-hmm. the, the application that, that I'm making of that is how today we tend to in the way that they followed people based upon like earthly wisdom, right? Who has money, who has the best rhetorical skills, all of those kinds of things. Who who looks the best, right? Paul talks about his look, you know, I'm you, you look at me, you don't see anything desirable. He talks about that in his letters, right? Well, yeah. today the people that we follow, whether it be Uh, Someone on social media or someone on the news or a political figure or something like that is a lot of the times for the same reasons, right? What do they look like? How well do they speak? Uh, How big of a following do they have? Uh, It's not all that different from who the Corinthians were deciding to follow and how they were elevating people and elevating themselves. Uh, It's very similar to the, we, we do the same thing today. Right, but yeah, Paul's not thinking about social media or a presidential candidate in the United States, right? Um, so you're 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 taking a what Paul is saying and you're applying it to something today. So you're kind of reading our problem today back into Paul and trying to get Paul to answer this for us. So we do that all all the time, uh, but sometimes in doing that, it causes us to misread Paul, or Matthew or Moses or whoever we're reading, right? And we make them say something that applies to what we're dealing with, and that's not what they were saying, even though sometimes, like with Martin Luther, the end result is right. You don't earn your salvation. But that's not what Paul was talking about. Yeah. And there's been what's called the new perspective on Paul in scholarship that has been an effort to reinterpret. Paul, particularly Paul's relation to and understanding of the law and of Judaism. And this perspective is held by many, maybe most, uh, scholars, but not all Pauline scholars. And I think that's important to, to say. Not not everybody yeah. accepts the, the new perspective on Paul. But the new perspective on Paul uh, recognizes that grace and faith are not merely New Testament concepts. When the law becomes works righteousness and Jesus becomes grace and faith, what that does is it says that grace and faith were not a part of the law. And it's a new thing with Jesus. Jesus is doing something new that was not there with the law. But you read through the Old Testament and that's just not the case. And so the, the new perspective recognizes that grace and faith are not merely New Testament concepts, but they were central to proper understanding of the law and God's relationship with Israel, just read through the Old Testament. Grace and faith are there; they're yeah. important uh, for Israel and for Israel's relationship with God. It's not just a New Testament or New Covenant or Jesus thing; it's a God thing. Uh, grace and faith and love and those kinds of things are central to the way that God has always interacted with His people, and so. Uh, With that being the case, Paul argues that Jews, or the, the new perspective on Paul, argues that Jews never thought that the law was a way to earn a relationship with God through works. Rather, they saw the law as the boundary marker to distinguish the people of God from the rest of the world. So, let me give you an example. God gives Israel grace before they've done anything to earn it, when he leads them out of slavery in Egypt. right? He then leads them to Mount Sinai, and he says, you are my people. I have set you apart. You're going to be a light to to the world, a priest to other nations, my prized possession out of all of the earth. God gives them grace by freeing them from slavery. He sets them apart as his people, and then God gives the law. And the law becomes this is how you are to live in light of what i've done this is how you live as the people of god that i have already made you because of my grace this is how you live in order to identify yourself as a part of the people of god and not as a part of the rest of the world and the primary identifying marks were kosher so food laws Sabbath observance, and circumcision, because no other nations did that. And so the law for a Jew was not a way to earn anything from God, but it is a way to identify yourself as a Jew, as a part of the people of God, as the ones who received grace from God, as ones who are in a covenant relationship with God. How do you know you're in a covenant relationship with God? Well, you're circumcised, you don't eat certain food, and you don't work on Saturdays that was the purpose of the law. It wasn't to earn anything, it was to identify you as a part of the people of God. And so based on this perspective, if if this truly is how Jews viewed the law, or at least most Jews viewed the law in the first century, then Paul's argument is that the boundary markers of the people of God have changed. No longer does the law draw the boundaries, primarily because the law was only for Jews. But faith which is is open to both Gentiles, is the new boundary marker of God's people. So, Paul's argument is that what God has done is he has opened up access to the people of God, to Jews and Gentiles. Well, the law was only for Jews. A Jew didn't expect a Gentile to follow the law. They could if they wanted to, but that wasn't an expectation because it wasn't for them. But now that God has opened up access to the people of God— to everyone, the boundary markers have to change. Because if the boundary, if if what identifies you as a part of God's people is still the law, then it's still only Jews who can be God's people. But for Jews and Gentiles to be a part of God's people, Paul understands that the identifying marker has to change. No longer is it the law, no longer is it circumcision or food laws or honoring the Sabbath, but it's faith. You put your faith in Jesus and faith is what identifies you as a part of the people of God. And that opens up a way for both Jews and Gentiles to enter in to God's people. Now, something that's important to understand about this is that, uh, this, that, is that when Paul, uh, in the letters that Paul attacks the law the most, so Romans and Galatians, as I mentioned, he says this and then he goes to great lengths to show that the law wasn't bad. Because Paul believes that right. if the law was bad or that if it failed, then God as the lawgiver was also bad, or God also failed. Rather, Paul teaches that the law had a limited purpose. If you bring Romans and Galatians together, the law shows sin, It lets us identify what sin is, understand sin. It also actually multiplies sin, which is an interesting conversation for another day. But Mm. the purpose of that is to prepare the way for Jesus. The, The law was meant to get us to Jesus. And then in Jesus, now that the law has got us to Jesus, the law no longer serves a purpose because there's this new thing that's happened, particularly the adding in of Gentiles. And I think that's also important because... If you read Paul, Paul never tells his audience, don't follow the law. He says, don't make Gentiles follow the law. That that goes back to Paul believes that the law is, is good, that the law is not a way of earning anything from God. But nevertheless, the law is no longer the boundary marker for who is included in the people of God. It's now faith. So Paul would say everyone, Jew and Gentile, have to have faith to be a part of God's people. That doesn't mean you can't still follow the law. Paul doesn't have a problem with that. Paul would probably say that's a perfectly fine thing for you to do. Just don't make anybody else do it. Because the boundaries changed. And the the problem he tends to deal with is circumcision. Uh, Jews wanting to make Gentiles get circumcised in order to be Christian. And in essence, what they're doing is they're saying, well, you still have to follow the law to be a part of God's people. And that's where Paul draws the line. He's like, don't do that. If you want to follow the law, follow the law. But don't make that the standard of fellowship. Don't make that the standard of who gets to be a part of God's people. And What's also important, I think, to understand if we want to get behind the mind of Paul is that this understanding comes from Paul's encounter with Jesus and his mission to the Gentiles. He encounters Jesus. Jesus gives him the gospel and sends him to the Gentiles. Um, and I think you see this. If you note uh, the the controversy over the law in the early church, so you think of Acts 15 where they're trying to figure out should Gentiles be circumcised? Yeah, yeah. and What does Paul do? Paul comes in and he says, we have seen God. Peter does this too with his encounter with Cornelius, right? We have Mm -hmm. seen God and the Spirit work among the Gentiles. Not not just the Jews, not just the followers of the law. We have seen it work among the Gentiles. And so Paul, as believing that he has been commissioned by Jesus to the Gentiles and seeing God in the spirit work through the Gentiles. That is what gets Paul to reconsider. Well, we have to rethink the work, how the law works among God's people. And that's why there's a controversy because the, the Jews who aren't a part of the Gentile mission, like Paul, aren't thinking about this, right? Paul was kind of forced to rethink the law. Because he's working sure. among Gentiles. And so other Jews weren't thinking about this. It was difficult for other Jews to accept. It took things like uh, the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. You can also see this when you compare, like, the way Paul talks about the law to the way, like, Peter or the Gospel of Matthew talks about the law. Paul tends to come across a little bit more negative. But that's because Paul's in a very different context. He's working among primarily Gentiles, whereas like Peter and the Gospel of Matthew is dealing primarily with with Jews. And so Jesus and Matthew says, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. It's like, I'm not getting rid of it. I'm completing its purpose. And Peter and Matthew might talk more positively about the law because among their communities, they don't care. Follow the law. Paul doesn't have a problem with that at all. The problem is you can't make Gentiles do it in order to be a part of the, the people of God. Um, and so in the end, the, the law is not a condemnation of works righteousness, Though we're not saved by works. Uh, but the the law is speaking of the boundary marks of membership in God's people. And so when Paul talks specifically about things like works of the law, He's talking about works that identify you as a part of God's people, not works that are earning you something from God. Specifically, mm. again, circumcision, food laws, and Sabbath observ- observance. Mm,
0: mm-hmm. Which uh, I think in in Colossians, you get not just circumcision, but also uh, the other two things as part of the discussion there, um, where he brings in those that are judging for not uh, celebrating certain holidays and feast days and stuff like that too. So uh, yeah, that makes, that makes sense. Um, there's definitely, I'm, o- I'm only saying this because it, I mean, the fact that it's called new perspective uh, is going to make some people go, Oh, a new, we've, we finally figured out Paul, you know, And this, <laughs> I, I understand that concern, but as we went through this, you know the the thought processes of like circumcision was certainly a, a line of demarcation. Like when it's introduced as part of the covenant with Abraham, it's very clear. Like this is a this is a setting apart thing. Uh, it's showing that you belong to. Um, so at the very least, like those elements are there. It's just a matter of what's in Paul's head as he's writing this stuff out, uh, and that makes. That makes sense. It's reasonable. Uh, So don't let the new part of that uh, freak you out or anything. Um, Pretty reasonable Mm -hmm. as we're going through that to see like, yeah, that makes sense that these are not, that their thought process was, this is what makes us distinctive. So in this new Christian thing, we still need to continue to do these distinctive things, which as Spencer mentioned I was looking up acts 15 while you were <laughs> while you were talking about it there's numerous places where Paul is like I'm celebrating this because he's among the Jews you know more than likely um, and so he's he's with them uh, he talks about to the Jews became a Jew to the Greeks became a Greek you know because the law isn't bad it's just not. Uh, necessary to hold those lines for mm-hmm. everyone. It's why, uh, is it Titus or Timothy that gets circumcised? I, d- I don't remember. One does and one does not. And part of that is it, it's okay to do that, but you don't have to do that. Um, and because of the audience issues, one does and one doesn't. At least that's what it appears to be. So yeah. uh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, very good. There's a There's plenty of work on... The new perspective on paul stuff again he said not all paul scholars uh think that but uh there are many that do and there's quite a bit of work anti wright that's one of his things uh is that he's heavily involved in that in the new heavens new earth stuff because paul is heavily involved in new heavens new earth so uh there's a lot of work there um as well as some others. So if you want to go further down that, that rabbit hole, I'm sure we'd be happy to do it. I bet Spencer would just love to keep going. But <laughs> So ask us, but there's plenty of resources out there as well. Um, okay. Uh, the next one here, uh, faithfulness of Jesus versus faith in Jesus. I'm interested uh, in actually, I, I didn't pay attention to this in the notes, honestly. So I'm interested in this one, very much so. Uh, explain explain to me the faithfulness of Jesus versus the faith in Jesus uh, as Paul uses it.
1: So this is another one of those things that is very heavily debated among scholars. But Excellent. <laughs> um, and, and it's also something that uh, it, I, I think, and a lot of scholars would think, that most, not most, I think all, as far as I know, all of our English translations get wrong, and so you're also going to hear me say that. Uh, listen to me, and not your English translation, which I admit is. Um, See, that's really scary language. Yeah, people. it's <laughs> a scary thing to say, but just Do some Greek work. Do Greek just, work, and then just follow. Just follow along with me. So, throughout okay. Paul's letters, he uses this phrase, "pistis Christou," uh, mm-hmm. or uh, pistis Iesu Christu, uh, Pistis Christu Iesu, uh, some form of that. So Pistis is faith, a uh, yep. Christu is Christ, Iesu is Jesus. So sometimes it's a uh, faith and then Christ, faith and then Jesus, faith and then Jesus Christ, faith and then Christ Jesus. So it yep. uh, changes a little bit, but you know, Paul's saying the same thing. now All the time, yeah. A uh, Christu or Iesu. Uh, That oo on the end makes that noun in what is called in Greek the genitive case. Now, the genitive case can do two things. It can be an objective genitive, which means that uh, Jesus or Christ is the object of the faith. So it would be translated faith in Jesus. It's our faith in the object of Jesus, if that makes sense. Sure. So it can be objective. Jesus is the object of our faith. The genitive uh, can also make a noun subjective, which would mean it's translated the faithfulness of Jesus. Jesus is the subject displaying faith or displaying faithfulness. And so, that Greek phrase can be rightly translated either way. And so, scholars have debated because what the which way you translate it is now determined by context because the Greek construction can be translated both ways. And throughout the New Testament, sometimes it's translated objectively, sometimes it's translated subjectively. The context determines which way, and so, scholars debate. Paul uses this phrase a lot and it's important to Paul, how was Paul using the phrase? Is it objective or is it subjective? Is Paul talking about our faith in Jesus or is he talking about Jesus' faithfulness? And like I said, I think every translation translates it as an objective genitive, our faith in Jesus. Many scholars, I think now most scholars, myself included, think it ought to be a subjective genitive. That Paul is not talking about our faith in Jesus, but he is talking about the faithfulness of Jesus. So, Jesus' faith. And let me give you a prime example of why I think this is the case. So, uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Paul says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed, and it is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, or the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. It can be translated either way. Uh, I'm reading from the NRSV, and I actually have a footnote that says, through the faith of Jesus Christ. So, it says in the footnote that it could be translated the other way, but the main body of the text follows what I think pretty much all modern translations now follow, uh, through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, uh, here's why I think it should be the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So if you keep reading the righteousness of God through faith in a Jesus Christ for all who have faith or who. All who believe. Same word in mm, mm-hmm. uh, Greek. Yeah. So if Paul is talking about our faith in Jesus, that he repeats himself. Right. It's the righteousness of God through our faith in Jesus for our us who have faith. Paul repeats it twice. And what you notice, especially in Romans and Galatians, uh, Paul does that a lot. Uh, whereas it seems to me it would make more sense not for Paul to repeat himself and talk about our faith twice, but for f- Paul to say the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all of us who have faith. So this is what Paul would be saying there, is that the righteousness of God has been displayed through Jesus' faith. Jesus' faith the father the faithful life that he lived his faithfulness to go to a cross and to be raised from the dead and if you read romans i think that's the argument that paul is making is that we see god's righteousness in the work of jesus and paul Mm -hmm. defines jesus work as his faithfulness his faithful life and particularly his faithfulness to go to a cross and paul continues uh, throughout romans like i said to make the argument that we the righteousness of God has been displayed in the work of Jesus. And he defines it here as the faith of Jesus for or to benefit for the benefit of all who have faith. And so, it's not that Paul doesn't believe our faith is important, but he says that our faith allows us to benefit from the, God's righteousness that he has shown through Jesus faith. Um and so what you'll notice is Paul tends to emphasize both of those. But if you make it our faith in Jesus, then Paul tends to repeat himself a lot. And Sure, yeah. To me when if you read Paul like that, I think it unlocks better Paul's primary theology is that God has done this thing And he talks about it in different ways. In Romans, it's God's righteousness, which I think refers to his dealing with sin and his faithfulness to deal with sin and his faithfulness to the covenant to Abraham. And that God has been shown to be faithful or to be right on both accounts. When you look at Jesus, God has been proven to be righteous. He's dealt with sin and he's fulfilled his promise to Abraham through the faithfulness of Jesus. Um, But the way that Paul talks about what God has done is different in the different letters that he writes. But in the end, God has done this new thing. He's been shown to be righteous. He's established a new kingdom. He's taken control of the world. However, Paul might be talking about it. But God has done that through Jesus' faithfulness, Jesus' life that he lived, Jesus going to a cross, raising from the dead. Going to sit at God's right hand, and that is benefited from us who have the faith of Jesus, who have the same, live the same faithful life that Jesus lived. We get to benefit from Jesus' faith when we follow in the footsteps of Jesus' faith. I think that's Paul. If you had to summarize Paul down to one line, I think that's it. That God has saved through Jesus' faith, in order to benefit those who have the faith of Jesus. And so when you're reading Paul and you see faith in Jesus or in Christ or in Jesus Christ or in Christ Jesus, uh, in your mind, change that to the faithfulness of Jesus and it not only might make more sense, but I think it unlocks a little deeper understanding of Paul's theology.
0: Okay. Yeah. No, that makes makes sense. That's interesting. Um, there are some things, and my I've done Greek, uh, some amount of it anyway. Vocabulary, always good. Spanish, Greek, all that sort of stuff. When we start getting into the stuff you're talking about here, like, well, here's how these endings and that's where I get, that's where I get really stuck. Uh, so it's, it's cool to see that like there, there are things within that language as there is in English, uh, things within that language that, uh, has room to go different directions. Even, even in Romans, I'm trying to remember what verse it is. Is it 110 or 115 or whatever, uh, from faith to faith, but it could be like from faith for faith, or what like there's a whole discussion there too. Yeah, that's, and that
1: that that's a good point. That's uh in one um seventeen, you kind of have this thesis statement yeah. that the righteousness yeah. of God is revealed through faith for faith. Um and if if, if you go there to three twenty one and you translate it as the faithfulness of Jesus then I I think that makes more sense of what Paul is saying there, that the righteousness of God is revealed through the faithfulness of Jesus for those who have faith, because that's Mm. the exact thing that Paul says in Romans 3.22. He says, the, The righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus for those who have faith. And Paul just shortens that to the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. Yeah,
0: like you like you mentioned, not only is some the the phrase uh, faith Jesus, faith Christ, faith Jesus Christ. Not only is that phrase used a lot by Paul, especially in Romans, um, but so is the double occurrence of faith words throughout Romans, like you mentioned in chapter three, like we see in chapter one with the, the thesis statement and in various places. So. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, one of those one of those phrases that maybe opens up uh, some more richness to things uh, in, in what we're reading. Okay, the next, uh, the fourth one that we have here uh, is one we'll probably mention here pretty quickly. It's something that we've covered before, and I'll make sure that we have that previous episode linked, uh, but we wanted to bring it up here. You have to bring it up when you're talking about Paul and how to interpret him, uh, apocalypticism. Uh, Spencer, what do you want to say about uh, Paul and apocalypticism.
1: Yeah, we, we've talked about before Paul being an apocalyptic thinker. And uh, one of the, the the key ideas in apocalypticism is that there's this cosmic battle that's going on between the forces of good and the forces of evil. Yeah. Um. And, and th- that's important for Paul. Paul believes that there's this battle that's going on. So in Ephesians, he can talk about our battle not being against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and authorities in the heavenly realm. And so Paul believes that there's this battle going on. He believes that the forces of uh, evil influence what's going on in the real world. So we see the results of this battle in our lives. Uh, but Paul believes that God has won the battle. He's won the the victory, and we're waiting for the for the full victory when God completely kicks out the powers of evil and establishes the new creation. Um, now. I I didn't put this in in the notes, but we were talking about Romans, and I think this is something else that's important. Paul believes that these evil powers uh, are—sometimes they're actual beings. So we might Mm -hmm. think of Satan. We might think of fallen angels. We might think of demons. So sometimes they're beings. But when you read Romans, Paul also personifies sin. So sin uh, as a— which is not an actual entity, but nevertheless operates like one. Uh, sin operates among the human race as if it's a living, breathing thing. And so Paul can personify sin and talk about sin doing things and sin establishing a kingdom. And the the it, it's a weird way about the way that when we as humans sin and we contribute to the existence of sin in the world, that that sin then impacts us. Um, It's it's very similar to, I'm I'm preaching on culture, and I talk about how we both form and are formed by cultures. So the things that we do and we say form the cultures in our families or in our churches or in our towns, states, uh, countries. But then those cultures form us. They turn us into people who accept the culture, and who live in accordance with the culture and who fit in the culture. So we not only form them, but then they in turn form us and sin's the same thing. So when we sin, and you can even think about it in terms of cultures, we add sinful things to our culture and those sinful aspects of the culture then form and do things to us. And so it's not always beings. Sometimes it's just kind of this force of uh, sin. You could almost think about it as The force like in Star Wars, right? You have the light side (laughs) and the dark side, and it's not an actual thing, but it impacts us and it holds us together. Um, Paul kind of almost has a similar uh, idea going on there. Uh, But again, God's already won the battle, and I think this is something else that's important. God has won the battle and so I, I, I believe that Paul thinks that God's going to issue in the new creation quickly, uh, probably in his lifetime. I think most early Christians believed that. And as time went on, they had to kind of reimagine and reinterpret how all this works because they thought God would return fairly quickly. Um, I don't think you see that explicitly in Paul, but I think it's implicit in the way that he talks, especially early on, that he, like most Christians, thinks, well, this is probably going to happen relatively soon. And then things have to be rethought of um, as time passed and God hadn't done anything yet. Hmm. Okay, well, there you go. Uh,
0: And again, more on that in the the episode that we've done prior. Uh, That'll be linked here in the, the show notes. So uh, a last one here, cross-slash-crucifixion-slash-Christ-crucified, phrases that he uses a lot, especially like uh, the, the opening of 1 Corinthians comes to mind um, in that particular letter about preaching Christ and him crucified and all this. Uh, big, big topic for Paul. Uh, what does he mean when he's saying those things?
1: When Paul uses any of these terms, he's referring to the entire Christ event. Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the cross or crucifixion, Christ crucified, something like that is just Paul's shorthand for the entire Christ event. And I think uh, that's important because I think sometimes we Maybe you don't want to say overemphasize the cross, but we emphasize the cross and Jesus' death at the expense of his birth, his life, his resurrection, his ascension, which are all of equal importance. It's not just the death. The death—and Paul even talks about this—has no meaning if he wasn't raised, 1 Corinthians 15. Um, It has no meaning if he hasn't ascended to the right hand of God. He couldn't have died if he wasn't born. Uh, His death wouldn't have meant anything if he didn't live a sinless life. And so for Paul to talk about Christ's death is for Paul to talk about the entire Christ event. And sometimes we read Paul and we see this word and it causes us to emphasize the death and think that nothing else matters. But when Paul uses the word, he's not just talking about the death. He's talking about the entire Christ event. So when you read Paul, use this language of the cross Make sure your mind is thinking entire Christ event, entire Christ event, because it's just Paul's shorthand. Instead of listing everything out, he just says cross sometimes. He does that in Galatians, just cross. Sure. Yeah. Um, Can we,
0: can we like connect this word to it's all like, it's a different word, but like gospel is shorthand for. uh, Yeah. Even for Paul and because in First Corinthians fifteen he's like death, burial, resurrection, witnessing, all of that. He's like, that's gospel. That's the good news. Um,
1: so this kind of functions in that same sort of way. Yeah, it's it's just instead of Paul having to, you know, list everything out, like you said with gospel, it's it's just Paul's shorthand for everything. The the entire mm. Jesus thing. Um uh, whether it's gospel or or it's cross, it's you, you've got to you've got to think of everything. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, that'll. I say the word
0: change, but I don't mean like uh like some kind of dramatic shift. Technically, it is a change. I, I think what a word we've used earlier uh, a richness to the reading, especially in Paul, as we're going through and reading these words, and then. On, uh, reading it with this understanding of, okay, this is encapsulating all of these pieces is going to add uh, more of a richness to the stuff that Paul is talking about uh, in those places, especially like 1 Corinthians, <laughs> where he's addressing uh, areas of unity and what unifies us. Well, it's not just the death, but it's all of these, these elements mm-hmm. together. Very good. Uh, okay. I don't know what we're interpreting next in the episode but it should be interpreted here in the next couple of weeks uh that's that's the whatever it ends up being <laughs> we should be back on a, a normal schedule barring weather and uh, any unforeseen i don't know vacations or life events or whatever it may be so uh this has been the episode Uh, today, how to interpret Paul. Uh, We hope that these things are are helpful to you, beneficial to you, and helping you think uh, a little more theologically as you study, Uh, especially as you're doing your daily Bible reading. Uh, For those of you that don't just start in Genesis and run through, uh, those of you that vary it up a little bit, which I think is probably the better way to go, Leviticus is just tough. It kills so many daily Bible readers. (laughs) So vary it up. Hopefully you're in the New Testament and you get to Paul uh, a little bit quicker that way and then can uh, implement some of these uh, reading and interpretation uh, techniques and see if that brings up new questions, if that adds to uh, depths of some things that you believe and reach out to us, let us know on Facebook or anywhere else if you want to get a hold of uh, Spencer there, you can email us at strongchurchministries@gmail.com. at gmail.com we'd be happy to hear from you uh, about all those kinds of things uh, until next time, I'm Jack and that's Spencer